welcome to Outward for the month of December, the last episode of 2019. I'm Christina Cotarucci, a staff writer at Slate and host of The Waves, Slate's podcast about women and gender. And I am currently seeking a pair of statement shoulder pads for my New Year's Eve outfit. <laughs> Largest possible recommendations welcome. Oh my gosh, that sounds beautiful. I'm Brian Lauder, editor of Outward, and I just want to send a shout out to all my fellow holiday queens out there. I see all the festivity and twinkleage that you are bringing to the season by your sheer joyful force of will, and I salute you for it. And if there are people in your life who are being Grinches about that, pay them no mind. <laughs> I also want to salute Ramon Alam, who is with us again and who I am delighted to announce is our official third going forward. How do do you feel about that, Ramon? Um, I feel great. I could not be happier to join this particular menage. (laughs) (laughs) We're so excited. Okay, so it is indeed the end of the year and the end of the decade. So on this show, we're obviously going to reflect on all that recent queer history as we head out of the teens and into the 20s. To do that, we've decided to expand our usual opener into a full-grown segment reflecting on the major prides and provocations of the last 10 years. And our gay agenda items will point you to our favorite queer cultural moments of 2019. But first, we cannot help but address another queer milestone, the the long-awaited and maybe much-feared return to television of The L Word. Christina, take us into the brave new world of Generation Q. (laughs) Loving, living, laughing, leaving. (laughs) So... For anyone who's been living under a rock, uh, the show that launched far too many Shane McCutcheon shag haircuts <laughs> is back. The L Word reboot, which is called Generation Q, premiered on Showtime December 8th. Um, it's just about a decade after the original version went off the air. Um, it's no secret that many of us at Outward were fans of the original to some extent. Um, Bet's art exhibition obviously inspired the title of our provocation segment. Mm -hmm. Um, I have to say I was, as you say, Brian, equal parts excited to be back in this familiar world that was so important to me in my baby dyke years. Um, And also to just have a show that is totally focused on queers and especially lesbians and and is full of a lot of great queer actors and and many new queer actors. But I was also scared um, that it would repeat some of the missteps of the original or just taint my ability to look back at the original and love it and hate it and, you know, keep it in sort of a place of um, complicated honor in our collective history. I almost think of the L word as like a family member. You can only hate it so much because you love it so much and, and vice versa. We're going to be joined by the one, the only June Thomas for this segment. Hello. Because we needed to have more L's in this round table. <laughs> um, we've all watched the first three episodes and I, I'd love to maybe just go around and get like a first impression from everybody. Maybe I'll just start with my own. Um, I found it extremely watchable, if extremely cringeworthy at times, which is not unlike the way I feel about the original series. Um, I definitely felt myself being pandered to as a fan of The L Word. And I think that's one of the hard things about doing a reboot. Um, So there's a new showrunner, Marja Lewis Ryan, You know, I think she had a really difficult task of taking this show that was so beloved and also so criticized and trying to make something new out of it. So she brought four new main characters into it, along with the three that are back, Bette, Alice and Shane, which were three of my favorites from the original. Um, And, you know, I think I think she did a good job of balancing the storylines. I feel like the new characters are not extremely well uh, fleshed out just yet. Um, the older ones feel, you know, unsurprisingly a lot deeper and, and more complex. But wow, did it feel good to be back in that L word world. Um, and, you know, it, it feels good to be pandered to every now and then with cameos <laughs> and with sort of cultural mm. references to like feminist luminaries um, mm-hmm. and and being placed in this. Um, you know, utopia where like everyone you encounter is queer and hot and hot, and and fully dressed. Yeah. Oh, my yeah. well, Ruman, I kind of I heard you 
saying something as you were coming into the studio. I want to to hear what you think next. Well, I think there is a lot to be said for the power of nostalgia. And I think that you're meeting something that was very significant to you. You're not alone in that. It was significant to a lot of viewers at a particular time in their lives. The L Word was never a work of art. Um, it was a work of entertainment, and we it's, can, you know, <laughs> can disagree about that. <laughs> it's very entertaining. I mean, there's, I mean, Shane is super hot, and watching her get off that plane in the in this episode's first few moments, you're just like, wow, it's just like seeing this hot person you remember from your past, and nothing has really changed. Also. All three of those actors from the original series have aged remarkably. Oh my god! god. It's incredible. I want that plastic surgery. Mm -hmm. Like Alice, in fact, looks younger. Yeah, Yeah. she does. Yeah. Yeah. So, but you know, the 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 pull of nostalgia, as I said, is is very powerful. I found, unfortunately, this new iteration of the show almost unwatchable to the point that I did not complete my homework and actually finished watching it. Um, Unwatchable how? I just felt like it was so... And I I probably, I think if I watched the original now, I would probably feel the same way, that the script is kind of performing... it's it's sort of saying to you like, hey, recognize this. Do you get this? Do you understand the joke that we're telling? It's it's, it's really unsubtle, and that's not to suggest that that's a problem. Like sometimes things have to be unsubtle, and that's what makes them great, and that's what makes them fun. And you know, straight people have every entertainment in the world that functions this way, and so it's kind of great. I mean, this is the L word is essentially like Melrose Place. Plus, like a college sexploitation film, plus kind of like wealth porn. It's sort of all these things at once. And why shouldn't it be? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's all things to all queers. Right. <laughs> See, I'm surprised by your reaction, Roman, because I am one of those people who had a very complicated relationship with the first iteration. I hated it in many ways. And of course, I also loved it because right. it wasn't just because it was all we had. That That wasn't just that. But I mean, it... You kind of, I had to grade it on a curve because as much as there was so much that I hated about it, so much that made me mad, and yet just its existence, mm-hmm. the fact that it provided some reference points, some cultural capital for us all to be, you know, joking about and dishing on and, and dissing felt so wonderful. Um, and I watched every episode multiple times and I wrote about it. And, and, and so it, it was important to me, but there were so many things that were just terrible about right. it. And I mean, as as many people have pointed out, including Christina in a great piece on Slate, mm-hmm. there's a way in which this is an atonement for the mm-hmm. the some of the terrible missteps. Mm-hmm. I mean, the the treatment of Max, the trans character in the first first season, uh, first series, the first iteration, whatever we call it, was I don't think anyone would argue just awful. And I think the the thing that made me feel good about this new version is that it felt there was nothing for all of this. I don't really disagree with anything that anyone has said, but you feel like these people love the people that they're talking mm-hmm. about and they know the people that mm-hmm. they're talking yeah. about. The people who wrote it and made it know trans men, mm-hmm. they know trans people, they know younger lesbians they know rich like they know what they speak of in a way that the thing that I always find with the first one is like do you even know these people like have you ever met this kind of lesbian and it's still I mean I'm not gonna it it is what it is and it's never gonna it's never gonna be certain things I wish there were some non-skinny women I would like to feel attracted to someone in the show Um, but uh, you know that is not the biggest uh, if that's if that's my only complaint it's fine and i did feel like the new characters i mean was there's a part so in this new version uh bet is running for office uh so she's she's becoming a politician and there's a you know one of those typical tv politician scenes where she says what she's about and she says you know i'm a i'm a sister i'm a daughter i'm a and this as child to- i'm a sinner i'm a saint yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and as corny as that was like i actually felt oh my gosh yes i know i yeah. can picture you as a daughter because i've seen your dad i can yeah. picture you as mm-hmm. an ex-wife because i know about that relationship i know about your sister i know i know her pretty well i know about your daughter like it it felt oh my god this is an actual rounded character mm-hmm. um and I wish, you know, Alice and Shane, I never still, still don't really feel like I understand them. And in Shane's case, of course, she's supposed to be unknowable and, and all that. But blah, blah, blah. I, I'm, I'm just glad that I feel I am actually going to get to meet fully rounded queer characters. Mm-hmm. And that excites me. 
Brian? <laughs> um, I I think I'm more on, and this is interesting. Maybe I'm more on Ramon's side here. I I wanted. I was very excited to watch it. I loved uh, catching up on the L word. Not I didn't watch it when it was on, but I I did watch it all later, um, and and sort of have a very soft spot in my heart for it. This I found. Um, to be very weirdly like intent on undermining every dramatic premise it sets up. Um, and I don't mm. want to spoil too much uh, by talking about all of that. But w- what I will say is that um, anytime there was like a, ten- a, a, a you know, potentially real tension, and I know it's, it is meant to be a light show, right? It's not, it is soapy. That's fine. I'm down for that. I'm down for wealth porn. I'm down for, for that kind of thing. Um, every time it introduced something that was like slightly serious or like like for for example i think i can say one like there is uh, uh bet's daughter is in one part uh shown to kind of be perhaps like a troubled teen and that is resolved within like 15 minutes and suddenly she's like she's in love with her mom again um and so and, and that happened like multiple times with multiple characters where like something was set up and you're like ooh this is going to be kind of like a difficult thing for them to navigate and then it's solved immediately almost like the show was afraid to have anything very serious um going mm-hmm. on and so it 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 made it very inert almost because cuz you just were moving from you know beautiful house to beautiful office um with beautiful people not really having any problems mm-hmm. um and and that was sort of strange this is yeah. like a particular trap of this kind of thing though is that the conventions of the soap opera you have to have all these villains like yes. do you remember on the episode of Seinfeld where Jerry admits that he's been watching Melrose Place and he starts screaming about Jane and Michael and he's like oh I hate him so much and it's like yes that's why you watch the yeah, show right. mm-hmm. that's yeah. what makes the Pleasure. show fun and if they're all sort of politically virtuous as they're as, as they seem to be at least in the show's early episodes then that's not like then there's no drama there. There's nothing to get mad about. That's super interesting. One of the things that really struck me, um, just to disclose some off-the-air chat, you know, just a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about the L word, um, I said, oh, you know, I I just wonder how it can com- how it can really fit in the current marketplace where there are so many lesbians on television. There are so many shows with lesbian characters, with lesbian couples, with blah, blah, blah. And then, and you kind of hinted because you'd already watched the first episode, Christina. But but when I when I watched that first episode, I realized, oh yeah, the first thing we see mm-hmm. is a breast. The first thing yeah. we hear is an orgasm. The yeah. next thing we see is don't a watch wom- the show in the office, by the yeah, way. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. No. Is a woman performing cunnilingus and noting that her girlfriend has her period. Yeah. Like just not only that, but we see yeah, yes. hand yeah. yes. come out with yeah. menstrual blood on it, yes. which like. Yes. I I fucking love that scene. Yes. I mean, yes. there's so much sex in the original L word mm-hmm. and also in the new version a little bit that's like someone plops someone on a counter or a table yeah. yes. and yeah. like their pants come down and then her elbow's kind of moving. But you're like, what What angle is that going? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Like, how, what kind of sex are you yeah. having? Like, why yeah. is no one's clothes yeah. off? And I don't need to see nudity, but I need right. to see that clothes are off. Right. And I really appreciated that you know, very unmistakable statement right out the gate that, like, this is lesbian sex written by and performed by people at least familiar with the concept. Well, and I have to say, too, I mean, not to get too obsessed with the sex, but there's a a trans guy on the show who has sex, and it's both hot and also I felt that I was seeing something Mm -hmm. that I have not seen and something that I hadn't even Mm -hmm. thought of, which is shameful for me, but, like, that... I've, that felt really powerful and and great. Even though at one point I was like, Jesus, are we just going to see a lot of like men having sex? Yeah. <laughs> is that and he's thing? verse. He's verse. Exactly. Really exactly. Cool. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah. Um, I I'd like to talk about the intergenerational potential for this show, which um, when it was first announced that there would be this. L word reboot with you know a new generation of characters and also that it was called L word Generation Q like ah <laughs> oh, get it queer not lesbian <laughs> I was like oh my god is this show going to be all about like how lesbian older lesbians don't think lesbians yeah. can exist anymore and how younger les younger queer women like don't think lesbian is a valid identity anymore they haven't touched on that yet mm-hmm. and I I really hope that they do Mm -hmm. i was scared when i first watched it how they might get that wrong um or you know make it so reductive as to be illegible by actual queer people in in service of making Mm -hmm. it legible for straight people um but now i'm kind of like i it feels like there's 
not a lot of room for differences of experience and differences of opinion because the show seems so intent on making its older characters um, you know, incredibly progressive and, you know, yeah. with the current discourse. Yeah. I mean, there's that that scene where Bette has like a, a sort of um, political rap session with the youths of the, yes. of oh the LGBT goodness. center. Um, in I LA. cried during that, which it's, tells which you is, all you need to know about my sentimentality. <laughs> sure. No, and it's, it is beautiful, but it is, it is, it is a bit idealized. Like yes. one yes. would imagine yes. more a potential for more confrontation or, or, you know, lack of sort of translatability uh, there than is, than is allowed. And, and in fact, one of the audience members comes right out and says like thank you bet for being a trans ally yeah (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah. i mean that was the thing that i the the fear then as well especially since as you've pointed out there there's there are a few antagonists that i don't want like turfs to be given a Mm. pitch but at the same time i remember actually feeling that the episode that transparent did around michigan effectively Mm -hmm. i mean they disguised it somewhat was actually really compelling because it allowed people instead of just saying oh terse, mm. mm-hmm. actually saying like well these are this is why they feel this is this group of women let's actually reflect what some of their views might be what some of their some of the reasons they might feel this way maybe they've been represent misrepresented maybe they've got some really awful ideas and then also have like a not a confrontation necessarily but a meeting mm-hmm. of and actually have people listening to each other still are so terrible. It's not that that's going to mm. be the outcome, but you know that you might just have a, a representation, of, and so there's an opportunity for learning while also having a lot of people in really beautiful suits, right. um, <laughs> uh, you know, actually say some things. I mean, one one of the challenges with representing Christina, what you're talking about, this generational conflict, is that these three actors who really are the ages of like the golden girls yes <laughs> happen to what? look really well How old i mean were the golden girls supposed to well, be well so you know jennifer beals is a 55 year old woman that's the same age that blanche devereaux was meant to be on the golden girls room oh with and you know it, to jennifer beals credit she looks absolutely Amazing. incredible she's a beautiful woman and this is not like the show it's a fantasy of mm-hmm. course it's a fantasy and like it can't really enact complex political discussion and doesn't but, want to. And it doesn't want to, it doesn't want but to. it yeah. would certainly help make that generational divide more stark if these women actually looked the way that m- the women I know who are in their 50s look, you know. I'm looking Beautiful, in like June, yeah. <laughs> um, the other thing that I'm realizing as I think about this is that I, you know, there's a part of me that wants it to have it both ways, to have yeah. a show about queer and trans people where they're not confronting homophobia and transphobia Mm, at every turn where they can actually just have very satisfying lives and sex lives and drama that isn't explicitly related to discrimination. On the other hand, I want them to have really difficult discussions Mm -hmm. and to not act like the queer people in the show aren't facing those things in their lives because that certainly does play into the way they're dealing with all of the other, you know, conflicts they're facing in their lives. I mean, the, there are many potent fantasies being played out about being wealthy, about looking great and all of that. But maybe the most potent fantasy is the idea of being a trans person of color who's worried principally about getting laid, you know, <laughs> and not worried for their own safety, as, yeah. is, as is the case in reality. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I want to know. I want to do a little poll now and then after the first episode has been watched by many more queers and see how acceptance of sex on your period has risen over. (laughs) Um, All right, listeners, I so dearly want to hear what you think of this show. Please email us your thoughts at outwardpodcast at slate.com. All right. So I don't know if everyone noticed, but the last 10 years have been kind of intense for queer people. <laughs> nah. Nah. No. Pretty intense. Huge shifts, some fantastic, some heartbreaking, some very much still unfolding, have played out in the realms of politics and the law and healthcare and the media and representation, art, even in the very words and ideas we use to understand ourselves. Wherever you look, we have been through it. So we're just going to sit here and process that together today. Uh, to help, we've called in friend of Outward, Andy Bowen, who works as a consultant on queer and economic justice issues. Oh, hi. Thanks for having me, everybody. Thanks for coming. We'll do this like our usual Pride and Provocation session, only much bigger. Um, Ramon, why don't you start us off? Um, what great. really mattered in the last decade? Well, um, 
I was thinking about this question sort of through a personal lens. Um, and I was remembering that in 2008, I was 31 years old. And as happens, I think when you're at that point in your life, we, my husband and I were going to a lot of our friends' weddings and we were flying home and he, we had this very serious conversation about how we ought to get married, that it, it would mean something if we stood up and got married. Um, at the time, that was not the law of the land. Um, and then it became the law of California that fall. And we flew to California where my husband is from and we were married in the parking lot of the Santa Cruz City Hall uh, where he grew up. And I was um, I was a jaded, jerky 31-year-old, and I was surprised by how much that meant to me. And so I was surprised by how much it meant to me in 2015 when the Supreme Court decided in o- Obergefell versus Hodges that... Um, despite what had happened in sort of state legislations across the country with Prop 8, notably in California, that, in fact, gay marriage had to be the law of the land. And um, for so long, my husband and I did not know how to mark our anniversary because we were married once legally in California. We were married again, sort of informally in front of our friends in New York. And then our marriage sort of became ratified by the Supreme Court decision. And... I am surprised even now in thinking back to how I felt in in that moment in 2015 that I felt so um, ennobled or so much bigger and so much more like it really mattered and that things had really changed. And in part, I think that that sort of distills the optimism that I think a lot of the culture felt when Obama was the president because optimism was kind of his platform and... Unfortunately, I no longer feel a sense of civic optimism, but I it's pleasant for me to remember a moment when, you know, that mattered to me and that seemed to really mean something to the culture. And in fact, even now, I think there's something kind of ridiculous about thinking about gay marriage. It's like it just feels like a given, which shows the pace at which the culture can change and the the extent to which the Supreme Court was just sort of catching up on where the culture and where society already was. Mm. Yeah. And even the Democratic Party. I mean, when the Democratic Party first put equal marriage in its platform in 2012, it was years after the majority of Democrats had supported it. And even a year since, you know, public opinion in general flipped. Absolutely. The history of gay marriage is a lot of sort of people in power catching up to where everyone else already was. I'm sure you remember when uh, Joe Biden... Um, had to, he had sort of said that he supported gay marriage and that Obama did before Obama was Got prepared to say it. Yeah. And then he said he went over his skis. And, you know, there was a sense that even the that the people in power were kind of pretending not to support yeah. it yeah. because yeah. they're they're sort of fearful of some imagined, I think, moral majority. And it's just funny how quickly that whole thing just deflated. What, one thing my spouse likes to speak to... Um, is like you know I was I was in college and she was working at the time like in 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 the movement um and she was like you don't remember what 2004 was like when we were losing everywhere mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. um and every single time I make some sort of snarky uh comment about like oh, we spent so much time working on marriage we could have done so much other interesting <laughs> right. stuff right yes. um she's like you don't remember 2004 like I did and so um, and you know there were a lot of messaging switches and yes. like various and sundry little tweaks that like as a as a pissy millennial uh, you know when I actually think back on like the work that was put into that and how it kind of served as a um, you know train engine can I say that mm-hmm. sure. for like <laughs> much of the rest mm-hmm. of the movement yes mm-hmm. absolutely um, that's 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 the moment where my pissiness starts to kind of melt away and I'm like and in addition to the fact that I'm married and I'm really happily married right. and I, like really enjoy it and it's super super awesome um, it's like it actually made a lot of things really possible yeah. and really quickly yeah I mean you're not wrong I don't think in in saying that was it was it a misstep to focus on something so conventional on, yeah. on the right of people to sort of get married? It's sort of like who cares when when there are others there are very big things at stake then and now in terms of actual human safety or human rights. It seems silly to focus on that, but I hope that you're right that in fact marriage became kind of like the engine that propelled a larger, you know, hopefully 
train of rights and a way in which queer people can be seen as fully human. And yeah, even as a rhetorical stepping stone to just have that sort of legal recognition of like, this type of family is a family. Yes. And, and, and we're using the same words to describe it as other yeah. types of families. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, I, I feel like maybe I was going to ask you guys if you thought that the, um, the discourse of like marriage being the wrong focus or something that was going to ruin queer culture that was very much, I remember, I remember being at Slate in 2015 publishing like 10 pieces probably that were like sort of anti, you know, that were like marriage is like the wrong thing. Um, even as I, we as can I, tell from your tone what you thought. Of those <laughs> well, no, I actually, I actually have a lot of sympathy. I'm, I'm very much of two minds. I'm married um, to one of my partners and you know, that was had certain beautiful things about it. I also think it, made um, my eventual relationship, which now involves three people, uh, really hard to sort of illegible to mm-hmm. to like family mm-hmm. members, for example, um, because marriage had come in and filled in all of this like ideological space that I didn't even really anticipate it filling in, like the understanding of what my life looked like and what was possible in it. Marriage had baggage, right? And it, and it brought that baggage into my into my life. Um, and so when my relationship changed or evolved, um, it became it was more difficult to articulate it than it would have been before, I think, actually. And so marriage in that way was complicating, um, um, even even as it had so much beauty. And yeah. I love the word ennobling. I think yeah. that that is true too. Um, and I, I don't know that we're I don't know that we've gotten to a point where we can see how all that's going to fall out yet. Um, Maybe we should jump to another one. Andy, Mm -hmm. do you want to? Sure. I mean, I have a provocation that I think comes off of that pretty well, but it's also. Are you trying to start a fight? (laughs) No, no. (laughs) I mean, like my pride and my provocation are very much so connected to that. So I don't know if I should just throw them both. Do it. I think that's fine. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So. I'll start with the pride. And and I think, you know, what Ramon just said about um, marriage just really spoke to that. Like. Our movement, you learned how to use federalism really well. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that's like a super nerdy, weirdy, weird intellectual. Well, not intellectual, but like that's like a nerdy thing to say. Right. Um, <laughs> but it was really effective. Like things, policy ideas and ways of changing norms differ throughout the country. <laughs> um, and like as a person who like I guess I started doing queer activism around 2012 ish and I was working on like a birth certificate and name change law in DC mm-hmm. and we were like I think the fifth jurisdiction to like get you know make sure you could have a clean birth certificate and like not have a publication requirement if you change your name in the newspaper mm. and it was a funny set list of states like California, Washington State, you know, but, you know, it really set things off to the point that in, you know, the last few years you're getting like a bunch of different municipalities, like either getting rid of gender on municipal IDs or getting, you know, giving us X's and giving mm-hmm. gender neutral mm-hmm. options. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's happening in a bunch of different places. You had... Um, advocates um, all over the country sort of working within funny administrative systems Mm -hmm. where they knew that they could, like, change administrative gender requirements. I mean, like, everything going from, like, getting the local DMV to um, acknowledge, you know, that people can, you know, people people have gender Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) and that the concept is, um, you know, uh, complex Um, to... um, to also getting the Social Security Administration to do that. And that was like that was a gradual buildup over several years. But I also think about like healthcare, like also followed like healthcare for transition related care. Yeah. Um also followed a similar um progression of getting from like California tried a law to make sure transition related care was there. And then you had a bunch of like regulatory changes um where uh Folks like a, f- a friend of mine, Andy Cray, rest in peace, who was like a brilliant lawyer and knew all this, uh, you know, like sort of figured out like, oh, we can change re- like insurance regulations mm-hmm. and Medicaid rules um, and do this pretty quietly. And um, that also ended up building into like Section 
1557 of the Affordable Care Act mm-hmm. helps cover transition-related care and helps cover trans people and health insurance. So there's this amazing march of like our our movement really figuring. I feel like figuring out, um, especially at the, through the course of this decade, like that we can use like these little wins in small pockets and in different parts of government and different levels of government to build up to something significantly bigger. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's a really strong model um, for thinking about how our movement um, expands uh, justice mm-hmm. and, and economic yeah. justice, especially. Yeah. To me, that says two things. One, it is a really elegant repudiation of the Republican Party's attempt to turn everything related to trans people into some sort of fear mongering culture war. Right. You know, it actually, we're you know changing small bits of the code of you know ex bureaucratic agency. Right. Um, and 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 look, all that happens is that people get more and better health care. Right. Um, right. Right. Exactly. It also speaks to the importance of diversity and representation at every level yeah. mm-hmm. of government right. um, and industry because when you have actual people who are trans or have you know trans fan- friend trans friends and family or people who are familiar with the issues LGBTQ people face when they're you know facing the administration and government or when they're facing the administration of public services, you have people who actually understand what the barriers are. And, you know, it's not somebody um, coming from on high theorizing about what do LGBTQ people need. It's LGBTQ people saying this is what we need. And and here are the points of tension where we can make things easier for people. And I mean, like and, and that is I mean, that's true. I mean, getting back to sort of like the the, the federalism thing, I mean, like looking at um elected officials like trans elected officials and other queer elected officials that we have like Andrea Jenkins in Minneapolis City, mm-hmm. City Council mm-hmm. and, and uh, Danica Roam and, mm-hmm. and you know it's like all these folks from like many different like smaller levels of government yeah. I mean um, I mean even like you know there's a, a queer person overseeing uh driver's licenses in New Jersey, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, like, that matters. That's super. <laughs> also, yeah. Indy's talking about, like, the difference between, like, when I talk about Obergefell, I'm talking about the sort of, like, sim- the symbols, the powerful symbolism of being able to see two men or two women as equal to all of your neighbors. But what you're talking about is the actual tangible result of changing yeah. unjust law and the, it's a power to affect lives. Like, the ability to marry... It could make you happy, right? Mm-hmm. But nobody has died from an inability to marry. And really what the marriage legislation did is like correct things like survivor benefits or mm-hmm. social security. It's like it's it's writing actual that's injustice. Plus. Yeah, yeah. You know, and yeah. that's mm-hmm. that is really interesting and remarkable. And um I think especially like given the climate we live in now, I think you have to look at those victories and relish them for what they are, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's given the movement a lot of, um, there are a lot of really smart people in the movement thinking about how to operate on different levels Mm -hmm. and what small actions mean. Like Mm -hmm. I was just, you know, I was listening to some folks some very smart friends of mine who work on regulatory law Mm -hmm. talk about like the benefit of sending a billion regulatory comments into like... (laughs) The Trump administration, yeah, when they sure. try to do horrible things, that like mm-hmm. even if the Trump administration passes horrible rules, having this admi- amazing administrative record where all these people, the majority of people said no, right. yeah. Yeah. helps judges yeah. enjoin it later. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So like even that is like our movement is thinking on that level and it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. That's so great. That's really Did you have a related provocation? Yeah. So my provo- I mean, my provocation is <laughs> it's about resource distribution mm. and the correction of injustice. My provocation is that I think the our movement has not adequately prioritized different levers that we can use to improve people's lives. Mm. Can you say more about Yeah. Yeah. So the the one that I am like most obsessed with lately is um, social program creation and government funding, right? Like, one of the first victories that the our movement had, like, in the early days of the HIV-AIDS crisis was, like, burrowing into HHS and figuring mm-hmm. out how to get resources for mm-hmm. people with HIV and AIDS, um, building into the Ryan White Care Act. Mm-hmm. But then we kind of, like, lost that thread mm-hmm. that, like, federal funding really matters. Mm-hmm. Huh. Um, there's this morbid moment at the beginning of In the Band Played On. Mm. Where one of the folks, uh, like, follow, you know, thinking about Reagan winning in 1980 and is like, well, 
at least our movement doesn't actually need any social programs. <laughs> and like, that's oh not God. true. Right. And so like, and, and I mean, the, you know, whatever, bitter joke at the beginning of the book. Um, and so, I mean, like, I, I, I worked with folks in this city to like create LGBTQ healthcare navigators uh, recently and like get funding for like an LGBTQ runaway homeless youth workforce program. Mm. And they're like, the, there are people who are working on like distributing resources, but it's relatively small. Um, and, and I'm just using that as one example. I mean, then getting to like, how do we fund, I mean, the most obvious, like glaring example, how do we fund really effective strategies for stopping black trans women from getting mm -hmm. murdered yeah. on a regular basis? And there are activists very burrowed down yeah. who are doing amazing community care work, who need emergency response funds yeah. um, and struggle to get them. And so... And, I, you know, so that's that's another piece of resource allocation. And, I, you know, I, I think back to like in like 2013 or something, I was working with um, this trans woman had been thrown out of a, a women's, women's shelter um, in D.C. And like we got a radical lawyer to you know, write a <laughs> complaint at like 1030 in the evening. Mm. And like we, we got the judge to, you know, tell the shelter you got to let trans women in and like whatever. There, there was a remedy. And. I was doing this, like, the lawyer was working for free. Obviously, the trans woman was working for free. I mean, the, the other trans woman, I'm also a trans woman, um, the trans woman who went into the shelter and tested it. And I was, like, working on behalf of, like, an anarchist-inspired, uh, like, all-volunteer trans activist org. And it's like, we did this for no money. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Imagine what we could yeah. do if we had more money thrown towards this kind of yeah, work. Right, and, like, yeah. still, right. like... Even in New York City, yeah. I mean, we just had this settlement around a trans man who is thrown out of shelters um, repeatedly. And, like, it's great that we had that, but, like, that's a recent settlement to get some remedy around trans people being mistreated in shelters. So it's, like, just thinking about, like, the bevy of issues from black trans lives uh, through just, like, getting our community and jobs, getting our community like actual affordable housing. It's like the money from multiple levels, whether it's public funding, whether it's philanthropy. And I'm like, I'm not meaning to piss on anything. I'm just saying to like to say, like, we have a lot more. It's amazing that we haven't dug in on this more. Mm -hmm. this. Mm -hmm. um, there's so much more that we can tackle. And I am like. I'm occasionally like it's 2019 and we're still like figuring out like the beginnings of models about how to like house members of our community yeah. and yeah. safe shelter like yeah. we still haven't really figured that out yeah. so yeah. that's my provocation christina so my provocation um was the pulse massacre in mm. june 2016 mm. and mm -hmm. and the response from people on the right um so at the time pulse was the deadliest mass shooting in u.s history because the u.s is terrible. It's not anymore. There has Jeez. been a deadlier one. Yeah. Um, but 49 people were killed. Dozens more were injured at Latin night at an Orlando gay club. Um, my uh, experience after the shooting was similar to that of my experience after other mass shootings, which is that I'm all of a sudden hyper aware of the danger of everyday life in this country with, you know, a country with such ready access to firearms that could allow somebody to kill dozens of people in minutes. Um, but the way this one particularly affected me was I felt that way in places where I normally felt safe. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, queer parties, the one that the queer party that I throw, um, which is a daytime dance party at, you know, a, a great bar on a very queer strip in D.C., a place where normally we feel safe. The bouncers are incredible. The bartenders are incredible. And all of a sudden I was like, you know, I run this party. It's my responsibility to make this a safe space. And I'm not positive that I can do that anymore. You know, thinking about what just happened at Pulse and occasionally our Facebook page, our Instagram will get a random message from a guy who's like, you're not sure if he's a bot or he saw your picture and wants to hit on you. But I all of a sudden became hyper aware of, you know, is this person trying to like case the joint for some attack? And I know it's um, ridiculous. Oh, but I don't know how ridiculous I think no, that is. Yeah. No, it no. was, you know, and I should say, like, it's actually been pretty well determined that the perpetrator actually wasn't motivated by homophobia right. or at least didn't realize, you know, it was a gay club. But the effect was particularly terrorizing for queer and trans people who really trust in 
gay bars and queer spaces to be some of the few places that they can rely on. And it was Pride Month, too. I remember, you know, there was heightened police presence at Pride events, which made many people feel even less safe for a long time. We didn't know what the perpetrator's motive was. Um, And, you know, it was also the summer of Trump. So there was rising fear watching this guy go around the country speaking to crowds of people who were chanting Trump that bitch. And then we had this moment where we had to watch Republicans try to mold this tragedy to toward their own ends and use it to gin up Islamophobia. You know, Trump, um, it's so terrible that it's it's ironic and sickening that there was this moment at the RNC, which has been sort of credited by gay Republicans as a moment where Trump really proved his allegiance to the LGBTQ community. And he stood up at the RNC and said he's going to protect LGBTQ people from this Islamic terrorist, from the violence and oppression of a hateful foreign ideology. And there was applause, um, you know, for the Islamophobia or for the statement of support for queer people. I guess we'll never know. But Trump, you know, thanked them and reflected for a moment about how nice it was to hear Republicans clap for gay people. And it still chills me to think about watching the right try to use the murder of LGBTQ people to paper over the way that they make LGBTQ people less safe and less able to live full lives. And that was one of that was probably my biggest provocation of the decade. It's really unsettling to remember that. And as you say, there are so many mass shootings that it can be hard to hold them all in your head. In fact, there was one yesterday. Mm -hmm. So um, it can be very difficult to... What you're describing is so inexplicable that digesting it and making sense of it is is an impossible task anyway, right? So Mm -hmm. to be reminded of it and just realize, like, oh, we never really reckoned with that, did we? You know, I don't think I did anyway. It's like, oh, yeah, that's this thing happened and there's absolutely no guarantee that it's not going to happen again and again and again. And it is that's a good one because it's really unsettling, but it's worth remembering. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. It also I mean, I think about um, there's been like, does anyone pay attention to uh, the idiot Bruce Bauer? No. no. Who's that? Okay, Bruce Bauer wrote this book in the early 90s called A Place at the Table as he was a gay man writing about his hatred of like pride parades. Mm. And uh, it was like one of those books. Okay. okay. And in the 2000s, I guess he moved to one of like the lowland countries in Europe and he started writing about as a gay man his fear of um of, of Muslims, right? And oh, wow. doing this whole, like there was a thing um, starting, I, guess, I think in the mid aughts. And so, you know, it's like thinking about all these disparate strands of stuff that like, I thought was really fucking fringe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, sure. like, yeah. g- like I Gamergate mean. and 8chaners, mm-hmm. like that yeah. became like a thing yeah. in regular conversation. Like, you know, it's like. And are now like in the. They're White at the House. White House. Right. Yeah. And, and administration. Right. And so it's like Bruce Bauer. Like, I remember the professor, like I, I wrote like all this stuff on like gay Republicans when I was in college. And like I had this professor who's like, I've been writing Bruce Bauer and we've just been saying about the Muslims. And um, this was like 2006 or something. Um, And I'm like, this is appalling. And to see it come full circle 10 years later is like, I was talking to somebody who is like, the right wing is so good at investing in small, like tiny little things. Like they'll Mm, invest in anything to go anywhere. And it's like, they've been investing in like, I feel like there's probably been some sort of like line item in various and sundry like right wing funders spreadsheets or whatever. Like I'm I'm being conspiratorial, but like, um, are you though? Maybe I'm not. I mean, like, yeah, I, I think I'm. I, I, I might be basically yeah. right, but like you know, it's like thinking about like oh, there actually there is like kind of a history here of like employing at least like gay cis bodies. I think against against Islam and towards racist ends mm-hmm, like sure. and that that comes to fruition in this decade in this terrifying mainstream way yeah I was just I've been sitting here thinking about what pulse meant to me and it's I don't know if this I don't know how to make this transition very easily but it was also as as true as everything y'all have said is it was also a moment so I went I went down there and reported on it um, oh, right. the weekend after and it was also for me this moment of intense pride in seeing how the community in Orlando and around the country sort of came together to um, 
mourn and fight back in ways that are very particular to us. Um, you know, if, if, there's, if there was anything beautiful, I almost hesitate to say that, but if there's anything beautiful that could come out of that event, it was the kind of protest actions I saw there. It was, you know, the drag queens doing these incredible um I don't know what else to call them except sort of performances of mourning for the community in Orlando. Um, people coming out to dance the next weekend and the two remaining large clubs that are that were there at the time. Um, there was some incredible, incredible um, resilience, I guess, shown by our people in the wake of that massacre. And um, as as you know, overwhelming as as the kind of um, the loss is to think about, and you can't, as Ramon said, you can't even really process it still. Um, there was also a lot of beauty, um, in the way the community responded. And so I, I, I'm, I just am reflecting on that, um, mm-hmm. as, as we think about yeah. it too. Yeah. yeah, definitely. So, well, you're talking about Pulse, but what did you bring in to talk about today? So when I was reflecting on the decade, um, the, Biggest thing that came to mind for me that that I think really caused like a sea change in um, in my life and and a lot of queer folks' lives around me, especially uh, gay men, was prep. Mm-hmm. Um, we so prep if, for folks who don't know is a, a daily pill that's a drug combo. Um, approved for prophylactic use in 2012. It existed before this, but it was approved by the FDA in 2012 as an HIV prevention drug. Um, And so it really took off in 2014 or so um, in terms of um, uptake, I guess that's the word, uh, or use. Um, in urban areas, and, and so so this is why uh, this will be both a pride and a provocation because there's there's positive and negative parts to this thing. Um, you know this this pill uh, prevents the spread of HIV um, up to like ninety nine percent efficacy. It's in, it's incredible um, that it exists. Um, it changed the way that. Uh, you know, many people have sex, particularly gay men for whom uh, in the wake of the AIDS crisis, uh, sex was associated with death. I remember when I started having sex at, you know, 19 or 20, every time you would leave the encounter, even if you'd used a condom and been safe mm-hmm. and thought about everything you were supposed to do, uh, if not in that immediate moment, it's certainly when you went to get your six-month test or whatever, you would you would be certain that you had HIV. It was just the way the psychology worked for a lot of us anyway, certainly for me. Um, that has gone away for a lot of us. That is completely, not for all, and that's, I'll talk about that, but it has really, um, for those of us with access to this drug, um, that trauma has has been, I don't know if it's been like dissipated completely, but it's been certainly shifted in weird ways that I think we're still dealing with. Um, and it's it's just changed what sex looks like, what it means, um, the weight of it. It's also allowed for, uh, you know, for easier serodiscordant relationships for folks, which is when one person's positive, one person's negative, that can be dealt with uh, pretty easily now. So it's, it's just a real revolution. Um, again, for the folks who have access to it. And so there's two sort of sides to the provocation here. One is that uh, this one drug company, Gilead, controls the patent uh, and is refusing so far to allow a generic to be made, which would make it far more accessible for many people. It is about, uh, if you buy it sort of on the open market without insurance, it's like about $1,500 a month for a bottle uh, for a 30-day supply, uh, which is just you know prohibitive for, for anyone without, without coverage. Um, or if maybe your city has a, a good public health program, but even then uh, it can be difficult. So that is that is a huge provocation. There are activists now. If you look at the hashtag Break the Patent, there are folks that are working on getting that broken, getting a generic out there um, so that more people have access. Uh, but it also has meant that that difficulty of access and that expense has meant that uh, prep has been something that has you know, all of these all of these revolutionary changes I've been talking about have been something experienced largely by white cis gay men um, who have the privilege to access it, and so. The community right now is really split in our experience of whether this is a pride or provocation, actually, I think you could put it. Um, it's something that should really just be a thing you can get <laughs> if you mm-hmm. want it. Um, and, you know, certain municipalities and states and stuff are, are working on that. But uh, until that patent is broken, that will be difficult. And so, um, you know, again, when I when I reflect on this decade, that that is just 
so major. Um, and I think the reverberations of it are still being figured out mm-hmm. uh, as we go forward um, between generations, between, you know, uh, the POS community and, and the NEG community. Just like all of that is is pretty wild to think about. Just to go back to what Andy was saying before, you sort of have to imagine that some some canny public health lawyer somewhere <laughs> is going to figure out some particular loophole that undoes all of what you're talking mm-hmm. about and that sort of like is redressed to these weird sort of systemic inequalities. They'll just find some weird workaround that maybe has nothing to do with patent law. Like who knows? And um, that's the hope that those like invisible activists are out there doing that work that actually moves things forward in a more equitable way. Yeah, yeah. Christina, uh, did you have a pride that you wanted I to share? I do have a pride. I'm going to challenge every queer with a bunch of money to invest in your local lesbian bar in the 2020s. Mm. <laughs> my pride was that First, I just want to do a quick little overview of my decade at lesbian bars. I went to my very first lesbian bar in Cue January. the montage music. <laughs> yeah, like we, I feel like we need a thump, thump, thump. <laughs> I'm staring at the camera right now. Yeah. It's frozen behind me. Um, I, January 2010 was my first trip to uh, a lesbian bar. I went to phase one in Washington, D.C. My college roommates brought me. We jello wrestled. Um, I didn't know it at the time, but my now wife was in the audience that night watching me jello wrestle. We wouldn't meet for a couple more years. Um, but, you know, it's it's almost an overly cinematic start to the decade. Mm-hmm. Um, it was the moment when I was like, oh, yeah, I could do this for the rest of my life. Like, I'm actually going to be queer now. Um, and over the decade, there has been um, – you know, a, a, a nationwide and I want to say global trend of lesbian bars shutting down. Um, they have continued to play an important role in my life, even as many bars that were important in my life closed, including phase one. Um, so it was extremely heartening and life affirming to see two new lesbian centered queer bars open in D.C. over the past couple of years. There's one called XX plus above a restaurant, and there's one called A League of Her Own in the basement. Ugh, of what a good name! <laughs> <laughs> what a good name! Um, it's attached to uh, a, a you know predominantly gay male bar, which to me speaks to new business models for mm, lesbian bars yeah, to survive. Yeah. Um, which I always love to see. Um, I'm going to put in that category El Rio, which is a, a predominantly queer bar in San Francisco, which um, was recently, its building was bought by the city and and given to an affordable housing nonprofit. Anyway, I'm excited to see new businesses um, or new models for, you know, keeping lesbian bars afloat. Um, And I also, the the success of these bars in D.C. and particularly A League of Her Own, which has become sort of revolutionized the way my friends and I hang out. We have a standing date there every Friday night because three of my friends live in the neighborhood. Um, it That's has so become... Uh, it's like the L word. I love that. It just, it has really, you know, and we're mostly in our 30s. And yet it, it uh, you know, I, I think there are a lot of false narratives around the... Um, the, the reasons why lesbian bars have been closing down. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. it is there's a prevailing idea that young people are, you know, fine going to straight bars, don't need queer gathering places in the same way that previous generations did. They do. They do need them. Yeah. There's another idea that gender diversity and, you know, growing numbers of people who identify as trans and non-binary have made women-centered spaces moot or exclusionary. And it hasn't. It just has required that they keep up with the times and yeah. be inclusive. And, you know, people are able to have expansive ideas for the way bars market themselves and treat their customers in the same way that, you know, identities are expansive. Um, So it's been great to see a wide range of age groups at Aloha, which is what we call it. Um, (laughs) And, you know, even the the bar gets so packed that women even trickle up to the male floors and on the dance floor. It's just like an incredibly gender diverse space. Um, And the fact that now, you know, I'm hanging out even more with my friends and we're able to have this spot where we can just meet every Friday has emphasized to me how essential these spaces are. And um, so, again, to any 
queer millionaire billionaires out there or even like hundreds of thousandaires, (laughs) I implore you to invest in these spaces in the 2020s, in addition to all the other resource shifting that we're going to do. Yeah. Be a Shane. Open a gay bar. (laughs) Be a gay bar. Yeah, absolutely. Ramon, did you have one more you wanted to talk um, about? I did. I wanted to talk about um, a children's book called Julian is the Mermaid yes. by a Aww. woman named Jessica Love um, that came out in 2018. And I want to use the book just to sort of talk about a bigger thing. Um, it's a lovely illustrated book about a little boy who sees some um, people on their way to the Coney Island Mermaid Parade and then is inspired to get all dolled up. And mm. his grandmother sees that he's doing this and like inc- helps him get really sort of fancily dressed up and they they head out of the house together. It's a lovely, very straightforward little story. Um, but I it might be a reach, but I, you know, I, I have two children of my own. They're 10 and 7, and I feel like my children's generation have a very different way of thinking about gender, and I think that this is a way in which we can really look to the kids. Um, <laughs> when you... If if you tell one of my sons, like, oh, this person uses the pronoun they instead of he or she, my sons will just say, okay, that's cool. And um, language is fluid and ever-changing, and it is the people who are sort of inheriting the language who will determine where it goes. And the fact that my children and their peers, and I, I know I live in New York City, but this is like, you know... I. I don't think this is a bubble issue. I just think that for kids of this generation, they are less worried about enforcing the binaries that we inherited from our parents. And I think that that is one thing that really gives me a lot of hope about what the future language and all that the language affects will will be like in this country. That's lovely. I love that. I love that pride. Well, that is our review of the decade that was uh, in queer life. Listeners, we'd love to hear from you about uh, what you're thinking about as we enter into the 20s. Um, Please email us at outwardpodcast at slate.com. This week for the gay agenda, we're sort of taking a retrospective look at the entire calendar year. What did we what did we love and what what did we maybe miss and that we think that Uh, those of you listening to this podcast absolutely have to commit to and um so brian what did you what did you love this year so i um you know you may remember that stonewall's 50th anniversary happened this year i don't know if you noticed i actually forgot this year has been going on for so long yeah really it's been a decade (laughs) and a year now um that did happen uh that was that was around pride this year and uh as an LGBT section editor, I was quite busy. Also, as just like a, a gay person, <laughs> I was very busy uh, during that month. Um, but also during that month, a number of wonderful books were published uh, sort of on the occasion of of that anniversary. Um, and so I was thinking it might be useful, certainly to me. I, I have some plans to do this over the holiday break uh, and, to, and to listeners as well to check out some of those books that you may not have seen. Um, so I just brought four, uh, and I'm sure there are more. Um, but here, here are four that I I'm have and I'm excited to look at. Uh, one is called the Stonewall Reader. Uh, it was from it was put together by the New York Public Library, um, and is a collection of sort of primary source documents and excerpts and speeches and things like that um, organized before Stonewall, sort of during the immediate period of Stonewall and after that give context to that event. Um, and it's fascinating. It's just full of really exciting things that I want to look at. Um, there is another collection called In Search of Stonewall, The Riots at 50, which is uh, more essays from sort of leading queer thinkers. Um, and most of these, I believe, were published in the Gay and Lesbian Review. Um, and so it's it's stuff that was published from 1994, from the 25th anniversary uh, until uh 2018. Um, So that's another essay collection. And then in sort of the more art-focused area, there is a book called Art After Stonewall, um, 1969 to 1989, that was out from Rizzoli. Um, that is exactly what it sounds like. It's sort of a retrospective of how Stonewall uh, inflected artistic practice um, in in those uh, two decades following. And then uh, a really beautiful book called We Are Everywhere, Protest, Power, and Mm -hmm. Pride in the History of Queer Liberation, which was put together by the folks behind the at LGBT underscore history Insta account, uh, which many of you probably follow. Um, And it is a lot of photographs with sort of short uh, essays associated explaining who the person is or the event um, in question. So all four of those are available. Um, Great Christmas gifts. Christmas gifts, absolutely. Holiday gifts, uh, get them because I think they are really special and, uh, you know, they, they don't, 
I don't want them to fall uh, out of out of focus just because the anniversary is past. Um, so that is my recommendation. Christina, what about you? Uh, the artworks that touched me most this year, I believe I recommended this on the waves too um, when they first came out. So Tegan and Sarah released a memoir of their high school years called mm. High School, uh, along with their latest record called Hey, I'm Just Like You. Um, the the memoir of their high school years is, uh, you know, the story of how they grew up in Calgary in the 90s and came to terms with their sexualities. They went to a lot of raves. They did a lot of drugs. There's a lot of cold and snow. Obviously, it's Canada. <laughs> um, and the record that they put out is actually comprised of newly recorded versions of songs that they first wrote and recorded during their high school years. Uh Um, And, you know, they sort of found these early recordings as they were doing research for their memoir. And it's uh, for, for to read the book uh, not only brought me back to high school, but also sort of felt like a bomb to my teenage self. Mm -hmm. Um, It's almost like, I imagine a therapist might, you know, suggest going back in time, think about giving your younger self a hug and telling mm-hmm. them they're important and loved. That's what this book feels like to me and the record. It's it feels like just this extraordinary gift to these teenage girls who were told at the time that the sort of emotional intensity that they brought to their music was immature. Um, and and I think a lot of people can write off teenage life that way or, or or teenage feelings and as puppy love and and especially queer relationships which they talk a lot about the relationships they had with girls that were more than friendships but something not quite like romantic relationships often very secret and the Tegan and Sarah's coming out stories are very different too which was really interesting you know they're twins um, but I, I just think to treat the emotional lives and emotional intensity of these girls as valid as a gift as something adults can learn from was extremely touching to me and um, I highly recommend that everybody read that book and listen to the record that sounds so great Ramon um, it's funny we're all such nerds I was also going to recommend <laughs> two books um, there's a book by Philippe Besson called Lie With Me, which mm-hmm. came out in April of this year. He's a French writer. Um, it was translated into English by the actress Molly Ringwald, weirdly. Um, but it is quite a lovely book of adolescent um, love between these two boys. And um, I highly recommend it. It's especially a nice corrective to um, Call Me By Your Name, which is a book that I feel like people really love does similar things that people really love but I I think Lie With Me is is a really lovely book it's really it's quite short it's very much worth reading and if you have like a gay esthete on your Christmas lift they are are going to love it and um, by contrast I wanted to talk about In the Dream House which is a memoir by the writer Carmen Maria Machado um, that documents her experience of a an abusive relationship that she had when she was a graduate student Um, Carmen talks in the book explicitly about um, queer villainy and um, uses this language of not wanting uh, not wanting her her girlfriend at the time to be that way because like didn't she know they were being watched didn't she know that like it's respo- it's the responsibility of gay people to live a sort of idealized life mm-hmm. and I think the book undoes that a lot in a, in a very thoughtful way it's a really interesting book it's a really well-written book and um yeah so i think those are the two texts from the year that i would recommend for you know especially because i know people don't have a lot of time to read so it's possible that you missed those two books this year but i think they're both worth looking at that sounds wonderful yeah i have that that uh Besson book. it's I'm, good i'm it's, so excited it's kind of hot yeah highly recommend yeah wow what uh, great reading material we'll have for going into 2020. The cold, the cold week, the cold weeks <laughs> yeah. between Christmas and New Year's. Mm-hmm. There you go. Curl up by yeah, the fire. Exactly. Um, well, that's it for our show. And that's and the it decade. for our decade <laughs> and the year. Um, thank you so much to our listeners for sticking with us through this year. Uh, please keep sending us your feedback, your topic ideas, and your questions to outwardpodcast at slate.com, or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Slate Outward. Thank you to Rosemary Belson, who provided engineering assistance for this episode. Our producer is Daniel Schrader. 
June Thomas is the senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts and the bet porter of our planet. (laughs) Uh, If you like Outward, which we hope you do, Please subscribe in your podcast app. Tell your friends about it. Tell your your lovers about it. Rate and leave the show a good review. Uh, We'll be back in your feeds on January 22nd. But before that, please look there for a special bonus episode in which we'll have an intergenerational roundtable of gay men discussing The Inheritance, uh, which is a seven-hour, two-part, very gay play currently on Broadway that has been called the spiritual successor to Angels in America. Um, Is it a revelation? Does it stumble before it gets to the threshold? That's a joke. (laughs) Tune in to find out. Uh, Well, it's been a gift unpacking the decade with you two. Uh, See you soon. Bye, Ramon. Bye. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Bye, Brian. Happy holidays, Christina. Stay gay, everyone. Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.